The What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Hello, this is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O Group and the host of the What to Know podcast. I am joined today with my friend and resident uh, smarty, Mark Stoos, who is the uh, founder and CEO of a company called Proof Analytics. Uh, Welcome, Mark. Hey, Aaron. Great to be here. It's great to have you. And we're sitting here in our San Francisco offices. It's a sunny day. We're looking out over, uh, you probably can't see it quite as well as uh, we normally can, but while there's the cruise ship, uh, you can also usually see Alcatraz from here, but uh, fitting because I know you've been in this office a few times and we want to talk a little bit about uh, your new company, not so new anymore, I guess, and a little bit about where you came from and what you guys are up to. And we'll do some of our fun, uh, normal questions about books and albums and all that good stuff. Awesome. You and I have known each other, I think, probably for six or so years, maybe five or six years. Yep. Uh, we had the, luck, the fortune of working together when you were at BMC Software, and I was helping out on the, the team with that with some of the social media and, and uh, thought leadership. Let's rewind a little bit, though, because you have had probably not an untraditional journey for uh, someone in comms, although that's changed a bit with the launching of Proof. We'll get to that in a minute. But um, I know you started, I think, at Edelman. You worked at H&K, so you had the agency piece, and then you spent times at some fairly well-known companies like HP, Honeywell, BMC software. And You've, and even before Edelman, I was political. Oh, you know what? I don't think I knew that. And looking at your LinkedIn, I didn't get that. To know you is to know that you definitely care a lot about politics. You I actually, you and I have a lot of really good civilized conversations about politics. I think you're a little more right of center. I'm a little more left of center, but we have a, a mutual appreciation. And I think if I remember correctly, I saw you got an MA from Baylor mm-hmm. in policy. International relations. International yeah. relations, right. Yeah, and, I'm, and you know, like like I think anybody that thinks on these things, right, you're right of center on some things and left of center on other things. And it's all what it is we're talking about. It is. And, and again, it, it's one of those things that I've really appreciated because I've said to anyone, and we won't make this about politics, but on the heels of just uh, putting out a, a, a podcast interview with Brad Parscale, who was Trump's digital campaign manager, a little bit polarizing. You're sort of the opposite of that because you're very, very much, uh, (laughs) you know, a pragmatist about this. But let's talk a little bit about your journey. And, you know, did you know coming out of school that comms was going to be where you wanted to go? And, you know, what's it been like going from agency to really big brands to now running your own company? And we'll talk more about proof and what that is in a minute. But we'd love to just kind of get a little bit of background on that journey. Yeah, sure. I mean, I I think that you know, like most people, you you start your adult life with something in mind, um, and then you learn a whole bunch of stuff along the way. And later, you find yourself in a place that you know might be the road less traveled or not, right? But but certainly is probably not what you thought was going to happen. You know, twenty five years ago. Right when you started, so, someone like me that took Russian studies exactly. for their undergrad yeah, and grad, exactly. and ended up the CMO of an agency. <laughs> That's that a, might be an example. No, that, that is a great example. And um, and so I I think that you know what happens is is that it's a series of small doors that you walk through and you see an opportunity in front of you. Uh, maybe you created that opportunity. Maybe someone else just opened the door for you, uh, and you grabbed it. You went with it. 
and your life is dictated by all of those small choices, right? And so in my case, right, I, I, when I decided to get out of politics, um, a good friend of mine uh, was a GM at Edelman, and he uh, offered me my first agency job. Um, and I was doing public affairs, no surprise. And then uh, Iraq invaded Kuwait, um, and I was recruited by H&K, who was who had the now kind of infamous account around Citizens for Free Kuwait, uh, was really the Kuwaiti government in exile was the client, and uh, was part of that and learned a lot from that, right? Obviously, it didn't turn out well. Um, you know, we did a lot of propaganda that we shouldn't have been doing, and I think that everybody um, kind of switched off their their antenna in terms of what we should have or should not have been doing. and. I think everybody learned from that. I know I learned from that. It's the reason why I keep it on my CV is it prompts a conversation about the truth. What is the truth? Um, you know, didn't take me too long to, to, uh, to go client side because honestly, that's where the money was uh, at that time. And I had a series of great opportunities. Went through Compaq, the merger into HP, ran global competitive communications for HP, which was kind of a combination of competitive intelligence. So this is now where I start to really get into data and telling a data-driven story, right? So this is kind of the a point of demarcation in my career. And it also was sort of a, a hearkening back into my political world, right? Because it was actually a great job. I had everybody from forensic accountants to professional cartoonists working for me um, and depositioning in a constructive way, in a truthful way, but depositioning our competitors around the world um, using humor and things like that. So, you know, when, when I kind of, you know, and you start to evolve, you're, not, you're no longer comms or just comms anymore. Now you're, you're kind of spreading out into other areas. You're doing marketing. I, that's when I became a CMO. You know, you, you just kind of, but I, I, again, I don't. Th I think so much of life is non is non intentional, right? Even if you think you have this grand plan, when you look back on it, there's a lot of twists and turns. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. And I know um, if we come up to this next question, uh, you, you started with the foreshadowing of you know dealing with the the forensics and the data story uh, when you were at Honeywell. I believe you started to pioneer a technique that is something that the, really underpins what you're doing today at Proof. Um, it is actually, a little- Actually, it, it went all the way back to HP, HP days. Gotcha. I mean, so, Mark Hurd actually gave me my first uh, kick in the, in the pants that started me down this road. So, and you could get a kick in the pants from sort of, uh, you know, you could do better, you couldn't do, or it could do better than that, right? Um, so, Proof, and we've talked a lot about this, you know, you, you started this company. Um, it totally makes sense based on who you are and what you've done, except for the fact that there aren't, at least in my mind, a ton of people that go and do the agency thing, political agency, big brand. You know, usually at that point, you're sort of thinking, let me become a CEO right off into the sunset. You went a different route and said, let me do a startup, right? Let me go down that path of having to raise funds, to put in long hours, travel a lot. Um, what was the thing, like, what was that kick in the butt there that got you really motivated to do that? And, you know, has that 
been exactly what you'd hoped for or you know let's talk a little bit about that too yeah no i mean uh, there's a lot to a lot to unpack there um you know i mean as far as proof is concerned the roots of proof are in a quest for significance right wanting to be able to say that what i did or my teams did meant something to the business in in a situation where in many cases business leaders are looking at you and they're kind of like going so what does this all ultimately mean for my what i'm all about right if, if i'm about revenue margin and cash flow how do you help or hinder this um as we as we started kind of marching up maslow's hierarchy of needs as it applies to this whole subject right we kept on so this is now HP, now BMC software, where I'm running comms. So this is a, this experiment, if you want to call it that, is sort of limited to uh, earned and shared channels at that point. And we, we, we there was a lot of support from the business. Um, we, we kept on, you know, we'd hit a new plateau in this experiment, and we'd see new vistas uh, that we hadn't counted on before, and so we just kept on walking. Right? It, was, it started to become kind of interesting, and it wasn't just a defensive play, and we were getting a lot of really positive feedback about it, so we kept going. Uh, by 2008 or so, 2009, we, uh, BMC gave us the only uh, innovation award that, uh, that they've ever given to a non-product innovation. Um, and it was particularly interesting given the fact that they also didn't own the IP that we had done an agreement early days around uh, ownership of the IP. So it, people started really making business decisions based on our analytics at that moment around cause and effect and what was driving what and what was meaning. You know, we started doing a lot of work around accelerating sales velocity and deal expansion. Can we, how can we help the business make more money? Um, and then, you know, as a result of that work and, and, and some early recognition out there in the marketplace, uh, I was really fortunate to be recruited by Honeywell to be the, the CMO and the CCO of Honeywell Aerospace. Um, and I had the opportunity to kind of do the ultimate POC, right, because I had control of all the levers across PESO. Uh, Honeywell was a really data-rich company, so there's a lot of data to work with. And we started, that was kind of like the ultimate proving ground. Um, and we, st we were able to demonstrate really significant impact on sales performance in areas that nobody ever dreamed were possible, particularly around velocity, uh, and then also big time around deal expansion, right? Um, there was a whole series of factors there that we were able to really turn around and all of a sudden customers who had been buying just a few things out of this giant portfolio of aerospace products were buying a lot more and it, and it was totally tied to what we were doing. And the, what's most important about the statement is that the business agreed with that. So, you know, one of the things that I learned along the way is that you can make all kinds of claims uh, as a marketing leader or a comms leader about the impact that you're having. And you may even be right, but if the business leaders don't see it, if the business does, doesn't understand it and doesn't agree with that, then it's all kind of like for naught. 
So a big one way that that kind of um, really influenced the development of what has now become proof is that for most of this period of time, so this is I mean, the better part of a decade here um, where all this is happening, we were collaborating mostly with business leaders, not marketers, not communicators. I mean, there were some of those, but we knew that if whatever it was that we built, if it didn't work for the business, it wasn't going to do us any good either. So it's a good walkthrough, and I, I personally know a fair amount, enough to be dangerous about what you guys do. But for those listening, and first of all, POC, if you're wondering, proof of concept and peso, paid, earned, shared, and owned media. Um, I just want to make sure. Like, yeah, I sorry can't, about that. No, it's okay. This yeah. is my like verbal footnoting <laughs> yeah, of right, the uh, conversation. Right. Um, one could make the claim with something like uh, Eloqua or Marketo, which is marketing automation, or Salesforce, right, a CRM tool, that that can accelerate deal velocity, that can help with marketing effectiveness. You guys take a different angle, so I really want to be very prescriptive and really drill down here. Talk a little bit more, you know, maybe you're, we're talking to my grandmother, right? What is it exactly that Proof does so that this software that you've built, people can really understand the difference between something like this versus one of these other types of tools I just mentioned? So, um, a lot of people have metrics of their performance, right? And a, a KPI, key performance indicator, right, um, is something that measures effort, right? I had a goal of selling a thousand to a thousand customers, and if I did a 900, that means I underattained, and if I did 2,000, I massively overattained, and my bonus should be significant, right? The, 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 what proof is doing is that we're saying, actually, that's not enough, particularly in the area of marketing and communications, which are seeking to cause an impact out in the audience and with the business, that to say, well, we generated X number of stories this quarter, or we had uh, you know gazillion billion tweets, or whatever that is, right? That is a KPI, that is a measurement of effort but that the white space in between the KPIs, the relationship between KPIs, is really where the action is, right? That we're saying, hey, um, everything that you do in marketing, it could be an ad campaign, it could be a, you know, a press release or whatever, right? You're doing because you believe it's going to cause a certain kind of outcome. It could be better awareness, it could be uh, more trust or more confidence or whatever, right? Um, how do you know that that's working? Well, if you don't, if you can't say, well, this this is how many of these things that we did, and then also instrument trust, confidence, and awareness out there in the marketplace, and then run correlation analysis between those, you don't have any way of knowing that, right? And then the problem is, for many companies, is that the time lag between the so-called cause and the so-called effect is can be weeks, months, and even years. So if you don't, if you can't compute that and adjust for that first, you don't have the basis for anything else like correlation. So really what we're doing here is that we're taking all of a client's data, internal data, this would be marketing data, communications data, sales data, other business data, market data from the outside, usually around headwinds or tailwinds, things that are making your performance easier or harder, right? We're putting all of that together and we're running large scale cause and effect analysis 
on all that data and we're finding all the patterns, so this is pattern recognition, um, in that data that you, you wouldn't be able to just observe, you can't just see it out there in front of you. Um, and we're also doing a lot of computed attribution, right? If you are, and this is where this is different from an attribution model, so you know, we have last touch, first touch, multi-touch, all those things are interesting, but the problem with multi-touch is that marketing is establishing the weightings on all the touches, and if they're right, they're right, but if they're wrong, it throws the whole thing way off, and then no one else comes along afterwards and computes whether or not that model actually turned out to be right. And a big reason for that, again, is this time lag issue. So this is what we have, this is what we've, we gradually realized more and more and more. It took us a long time, so I have a lot of sympathy for people in this audience who are struggling with this. It takes a while to kind of wrap your head around it, but at the end of the day, what you do takes a certain amount of time to have an effect. It can be a short period of time or a long period of time. And if you don't know what that is, then literally you don't know when to tell people to look down here at the other end of the pipe and the water is gonna come out of that pipe right now, right? We started pumping that water way back here and it's been moving through that pipe, moving through that pipe, boom. Your ability to call that ball and to say with accuracy when things are going to have an effect and what kind of effect they're going to have is the whole ball of wax in business. And I think there's one additional piece that's a sort of new piece to the tool. And I want to drill down on something or split hairs on something here where you talked about they can upload their data. What's good about your tool, correct me if I'm putting words in your mouth, is that it keeps that data separate and private to that customer. But you now have an ability where let's say, you know, we're an agency, we have a client, there are three other agencies, maybe a couple of other partners you allow all of those parties to upload their pieces of data to this platform and you create this ability for the client, whomever that is, could be the agency, could be the actual brand, to set permissioning around who gets to see what pieces of data, although they can use some of the building blocks even if it's anonymized or uh, blinded, I guess, to yeah, them. Obfuscated. Ob 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 yeah. Obfuscated. Right. Um, to make sure that, you know, only the people that need to see it. And I think this is a conundrum that a lot of companies, I know we've worked with a lot and I've done this, you know, I worked at Fidelity Investments back in the day. This was one of the issues is companies didn't want to share their sales data or they didn't want to share their CRM data, but they did want to sort of know how they were doing vis-a-vis -vis some of these other things. So you really seem to now have unlocked the, you know, uh, the, the solution to this that no one else really seems to have unlocked yet. That's true. I mean, I, um, so proof exchange is what you're talking about. And basically exchange gives a client, uh, our client, right? So I'm, I'm going to, I'll just pick a name. Let's say we're talking about Oracle, right? Oracle has a bunch of people on the inside, right, that have that own data and they can already collaborate uh, in proof because let's say they have a license, right? So everyone in, that's an Oracle employee can collaborate in the data. But there's a huge portion of the relevant data to this whole Oracle marketing enterprise that we're talking about that is in the hands of their agencies around the world 
other contractors, data providers that they have contracts with, and all these folks are on the other side of Oracle's firewall. Historically, that has made it very difficult to share data. What we have done is we have essentially um, drilled holes selectively in the walls between the tenancies, the licensees of proof, right? The ones that want to collaborate with each other. And it allows them to securely crowdsource data together, crowd compute the outcomes from that data, and then crowd share the, the intelligence, the, the insights back out to that whole group. So it pretty much nails a whole bunch of issues all at once, right? The ability to securely bring disparate sources of data together and manage it all in one place while maintaining um, ownership rights over that data uh, is really important. That's number one. The ability that to then have everybody be able to drag and drop data sets into a cause and effect relationship calculator and get answers, that is also powerful stuff. But the most powerful thing in the end is the ability to create that single source of truth or that single sheet of music for your entire marketing ecosystem or your entire marketing and sales ecosystem to say, hey, this is, this is what's really going on and all of us either need to do more of this and less of this or whatever the case may be. So it's, it's, a, it's powerful and it is an industry first. It's never been done with data analytics. There are a lot of sharing tools for data scientists that share algorithms and code, uh, but nobody has ever done this before. And so it's, uh, it's pretty cool. That is very cool. And uh, you know, wish you nothing but the best. And I know we're you know, kicking tires, so looking forward to more exploration on that front. Uh, I'm gonna go in a little bit of a different direction now, which is more of the kind of let us wind down and have fun over the last, you know, four or five minutes. Um, one of the questions I normally ask guests is, you know, who's inspiring you or who's influencing you? But I, knowing you, I want to ask you a different question. You and I talked a little bit about this, and that was, who is the most interesting person you've ever met and why? And you have a good one. And uh, tell us a little bit about this Italian well, I would, economist. I would have to, so so may, I may be kind of projecting uh, elements of my own uh, situation today here, but um, I would say that Nouriel Roubini, uh, the, the uh, Italian-American economist who predicted the meltdown in 2008 uh, and was a voice crying in the wilderness for a long time. I first met him at Davos when nobody even wanted to see his face um, and thought he was kind of the mad prophet. Um, and, you know, the very next year at Davos, he was up on stage and he was the you know, he was the cause celeb, right, of, of Davos that year because he had been proven right, you know, in a way that nobody, including him, wanted to be proven right. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, and I think also one of the interesting things about Nouriel having been out on the town with him a little bit in Davos um, is he is a very complex person, and um, when you catch him socially, you would never dream in a thousand years that this was a you know, much vaunted um, economist. He's a party animal, right? And he's hilariously funny, very dry wit, you know, all that kind of stuff that goes uh, along with that. 
Um, and so, you, you know, he's, he's not the classic portrait of, a, of an academic at all. That's, that's an interesting conundrum because I'm sure, like Michael Moore, before the Trump election, had predicted that Trump was going to win. And he was maybe one of the least likely people that folks would expect, you know, would tell us the story. That's going to be a, a heavy weight where you know you're right, but you hope that you're not. And you have a lot of people that are probably punching you in the face because they're hoping that you're not. And then you end up being right. Yeah. And I mean, and, and uh, you, know, I, pr- I, you know, the more I think about this, the more I think there probably is a connection to, to where I am right now. Because, um, you know, I believe that the marketing and communications professions are going to have to change the way that they do business and, and that the moment is here. Last year, we saw record numbers of CMOs be fired from their jobs in the Fortune 1000. And when the CMO Council did their poll, uh, what came back is that the number one reason was failure to show business impact. You know, the, the, what this means for the client side and what it means for the agencies is really significant. And so there are some people who don't really like what is being said by me and others about this. Um, and, and, you know, that can be hard, particularly when you're trying to build a business uh, and everything. And, you, you know, uh, if they like you, they're much more likely to, you know, pay you money. And if, they're, if they don't, then it's almost like a no, for sure no. And so you'd rather not be in a point, a place of controversy. But I think that in this case, right, it, it, uh, it just it goes with the territory, right? We're, we, are tra- we are helping transform the business models of two professions that have been around for a long time. And hopefully those listening in can sense the irony of the fact that the CMO of W2O Group, being me, is sitting here talking to the guy that's predicting the demise of the CMOs. I do feel completely comfortable, though, because I embrace change, and yeah, I am with you 100%. And I, yeah, and I, I'm not actually predicting the demise of CMOs as much as I think that they are, they're going to become business people who happen to specialize in marketing or communications, um, as opposed to... Well, actually, you know, so let's look at the rest of the C-suite just real fast, right? You look at a CFO. This is a business leader who happens to specialize in finance. You look at uh, a general counsel of a publicly traded company. This is a business leader who happens to be a lawyer, right? And so it's really about that. It, it seems like it's um, a, a nuance uh, of perspective, but it's actually not if you lead out right, with a business perspective. So, for example, I'm going to say something really controversial right here. I think that, the, that uh, it's very clear that a creative-first strategy is a commoditized strategy today and that an agency that is pursuing that approach as opposed to a data-led and business insights-led approach which is W2O in a nutshell, right? That's why W2O is doing so well. The other ones are not, right? They're flatlining, top-lining growth. They are, um, their margins continue to shrink. Um, these, are, these are not signs of a healthy profession. And so, but if all of a sudden you can prove your worth, you can prove that you made this happen, that you contributed to this, the whole thing changes. You can charge more for your services. You know, it reinflates your margin. I mean, um, I'm skipping around here a little bit, but 
if we look, think about one of the main things that has collapsed agency margins, not the only thing, but it's probably the biggest thing, is procurement action. Most agencies have interpreted that over the last, say, 10 years as, well, of course, everybody wants to get something cheaper, right? Not understanding that the main reason why companies were doing it is that they knew that they needed these services. There wasn't any doubt about that. But because they couldn't prove what those services were ultimately worth to the business, the only way to control their risk in this situation was to drive the cost down as low as possible. Now, the problem with that is, right, is that you start breaking things because you don't know where you are. And all of a sudden, you go below the hard deck and things break. And then all of a sudden, it takes two quarters for everybody to agree that it was broken. And then you got to reinflate it and fix it and all this kind of stuff. And that's a cycle that happens. It oscillates back and forth within a lot of large companies and even smaller ones. And that, that, that right there presents an enormous amount of business risk. One of the, I think one of the things that we're seeing right now is um, very surprising, actually, even to me, is the number of chief, chief risk officers who are being asked by their boards or by their, their CEO to look at unproven marketing spend as a business risk. It, it's, it's sort of jarring, right? But if you're spending huge amounts of money, the opportunity cost on even a, a percentage of those dollars is, is really significant. If you're, in other words, if you're spending that money wrongly and you could be allocating it somewhere else for much greater effect that you want to know that and that's the huge business risk so that was a good sidebar thank you for bringing that in because i think no no no, i I let you go on because that's a critical piece to the puzzle and i think helps us bring it home and speaking of bringing home i do want to bring home the the interview here so we stay sort of within our reasonable time bounds um last two questions and maybe we could do this in pithy style, mm-hmm. one, I normally ask, you know, who's, like, what books are you reading? I know you're a history buff, and you and I have talked a lot about this, so I think just to mix it up a little bit, I'd love to get a, what's a history book either that you've read recently or one that you strongly recommend, and then we'll go on to our final and, and fun music question. So uh, both from, uh, from uh, the perspective of learning something that most people don't know about history that's highly relevant to today, um, and also a very, very entertaining book to read. It's very fast read. It's not turgid at all. It's very exciting. It's called uh, Empires of the Sea uh, by a British historian named Roger Crowley. Um, and it is, it is about, it basically takes place between roughly 1450 and 1550, somewhere in that time frame, in the Mediterranean. Um, and it's the war, the, the ongoing conflict between Western Europe and the Ottoman Turks, uh, essentially the Arab countries of today. Um, it was Europe's first experience with total war. When you, when you read this, you're just like, holy cow. I mean, it was really appalling. It was, it was atrocity upon atrocity on both sides at scale. Huge numbers of people impacted. Um, and it is, um, I'm, I'm not justifying um, uh, terrorism at all by saying this, but it is, is events in that time frame, uh, and even the crusade, uh, crusades that preceded that time frame, 
that are uppermost in the minds of a lot of Islamic radicals. And so if you really understand that history, um, you can see why we are where we are today in some respects. Right? Again, we all have freedom of choice, and you should choose to not do bad things, but um, nevertheless, right? History, history is always about the ripple effects into the future. It's not really about the past. It's about today. Yeah, and I think that's a valuable lesson that I know I've heard from a lot of smart people I talk to. It's how do you learn from history, and it does repeat itself, right? And the more you can study it and better understand and respond to what goes forward, the better off you are. Last question. Yep. It's the fun music question. Uh, Desert Island, you can only pick one album, ideally not a, not a greatest hits album. Uh, what would it be and why? Uh, for me, it would be uh, U2 at Red Rocks. Um, not only do I love uh, the band and their music, um, but uh, through a quirk of fate a uh, long, long time ago, I happened to be at that concert. I have just a little bit more respect for you right now. Not that I don't have a lot, but <laughs> that's actually a favorite album of mine. I just saw them recently in, uh, down at uh, Levi's Stadium, and it was an amazing show. So Yeah, no, they, you know, it's uh, – and, and talk about a group of guys that uh, are far more than the, than the one dimension – that they sometimes appear to be as musicians, you know, powerful intellects, um, very, very strong personal faiths, religious faith, um, in action with people around the world that are starving, that need water, that, I mean, they, they really, really care deeply and they put their own butts on the line all the time in some really scary places to help people. These are not things that the average rock star ever feels inclined to do or, you know, or certainly would do. Would, I mean, you know, take that kind of risk. Why? Why should I? You know, I can hang out in Beverly Hills. So I just have an enormous amount of respect for them. Um, and so I enjoy their music even more as a result. And so that would be my choice, both nostalgically and because I just I listen to that album at least once a week. <laughs> well, it's a great choice. And again, personally, I love it. Um, this has been everything that I had hoped for and then some, uh, you know, lots of nice dimensions to it. So this is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O Group, post, uh, host of the What to Know podcast, sitting here with my guest, Mark Stoos, who is the founder and CEO of Proof. Thank you, Mark. Hey, thanks, Aaron. It was great. Want more episodes of the What to Know podcast? We post a new episode every Thursday. Check them out on iTunes, the podcast app, and the podcast page at w2ogroup.com backslash what to know.